Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I've got a lot of interests, a bit like you, and um, system change and uh, system efficiency is a real interest. Um, also, um, not efficiency for efficiency's sake, but to drive things out from the to unclutter or declutter the court processes so that you don't have anybody coming to court and wasting their own money and the taxpayers' money for no good reason. So that's what drove me in, in civil reform. Those are the inspiring words of my mum and judge of the County Court of Victoria, Sandra Davis. Well, I'm really excited about this special milestone episode this week for our 150th. Uh, milestones are officially reserved for family, following on from Louise, my wife's magical appearance at the 100 episode mark. So we'll do a bit, short bit of housekeeping and then we'll get right back to mum. First off the bat, I'm chuffed to have been nominated for the Pro Bono Australia Impact 25 Awards for Humans of Purpose. As mentioned, we've now recorded and put out 150 quality weekly conversations showcasing Australian purpose-driven leaders and their organisations since early 2017. We've been listened to by over 100,000 young Australians who are aspiring and current for-purpose sector people. That's the equivalent of about 15 sizable audiobooks worth of content, and you need to take about four weeks off from work, not that I suggest that you do, to get through all that content uh, from episode one right until today in episode 150. These conversations inspire, connect people, share valuable insights, build capacity across our sector, and encourage people toward meaningful work that has a positive social impact. It would mean a lot to me and to our podcast if you voted for us. And to do so, all you need to do is hit the link in our show notes or head to pbaimpact.com, click vote now, and find my name, Mike Davis, about halfway down the screen. Make sure you do so now or before tomorrow the 13th at 5pm to avoid mutual disappointment. My gratitude goes out to our listeners who have uh, opted to actively support the podcast by becoming Patreon supporters. It's exciting to have Rich join us last week and edge us up to 17 supporters, and we're getting closer every week to our sustainable target of 30 Patreon supporters. So thank you to our wonderful Patreon supporter family, including now Rich, Tanvir, Lucia, Judy, Jules, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Misha Times 2, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. Our Patreon family are pivotal in helping me to shape the direction of the podcast through their ideas, um, advice, referrals, and ongoing feedback. If you want to join our fabulous Patreon community and support the growth of Humans of Purpose, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Well, without further ado, today I'm talking to my mum and judge of the County Court of Victoria, Sandra Davis, or as we know her, Sandy. Sandy has had an incredible career, and since I was a young boy, she's been my biggest role model. Sandy's a voracious reader with an inexhaustible curiosity about all manner of topics ranging from philosophy, economics, law, policy, psychology, sociology, medical ethics, and Aboriginal affairs. She speaks fluent French, serviceable Hebrew, some Japanese and Chinese, and attended many of our, many of our planet's top universities. She's a great mentor to many. But as a committed introvert, she was the hardest guest to convince to date to come on the show. In fact, being a guest on the show was the first episode she's listened to. So I really enjoyed uh, my chat with my mum. I think you will. It's candid. It's informative. Um, she really is one of my biggest role models. So I think it's timely that we introduce you to Sandy Davis. 
So I'm here with my mum for our 150th anniversary episode. I had to do a fair bit of begging to get you on the show, but you finally made it. Too shy by half. You're fantastic. I'm so pleased you're with us. And um, Mum, tell us a little bit about, I mean, obviously I know your, your journey, but I'd love that if you could share a little bit about your, your background, your, your journey into where you are today as a judge at the county court uh, with our audience. Um, well, I suppose I should say uh, in deference to my parents who came here as migrants from Egypt uh, without a, a state to go to, that um, my father worked on the docks and uh, loaded ships and uh, plucked chickens and chopped wood uh, for a few years before he opened a, a business. It turned out to be the first travel agency in the country uh, because he'd been a travel agent or worked for an airline <clears throat> previously in Egypt before he was locked out. And um, so he started a business in one room in Collins Street, his father was a tailor, and at one side of the room, I think his father was making ties and selling them, and uh, at the other end of the room, <clears throat> my father was selling travel, so he engaged himself in mainly migrant travel for basically his whole career, and then it developed into a, a larger business, but he spent a lot of uh, time and energy uh, working with the Greek and Italian communities and uh, arranging their trips to and from home, greeting ships when they came in. And uh, he spoke uh, Italian and French and a bit of Greek. Um, and so we had a bit of a multilingual family. French was in the household. There was Arabic there as well, wasn't there? There was a bit of Arabic. but um, Particularly during uh, heated card games? <laughs> there was a bit of Arabic. Um, every every lang- I suppose every, every multilingual family has uh, choice words that they steal from <laughs> certain languages and... Um, when they couldn't think of the word in English, it came out either in Arabic or French or Italian. <laughs> so it was a bit of a, a mishmash. Um, the French call it franglais, which is a mixture of French and English, but uh, in our household it was uh, that Italian and Greek and uh, sometimes some uh, the odd extra language. So um, I went to a – I think by the time I was – born, uh, things were a bit, uh, my father's business was established, my grandfather of course had passed away and uh, so I went to school and um, when I finished school I decided to um, try and, I thought I might become an interpreter and save the world that way, so I went to France to study languages because I'd had French in the family and uh, thought I could use that as a springboard, but as it turned out I didn't quite have uh, probably the right combination of languages and I quickly realised that um, Perhaps interpreting was a much more uh, confined activity than I had imagined it to be. So, um, But your, your natural level of languages sort of took you to that place it where did. it was a possibility. It did, exactly. You know, it's almost like uh, sliding doors and, and lives that could have been lived. You see yourself doing one thing and then um, there's a sort of a sliding door moment where you realise that's not it and then you try and move to the next thing. So uh, then I met your father and uh, that created some complications as I was living in he France. He always does. <laughs> And uh, so in the end, we decided we'd rather live in the same country. So I came back from France, went to Monash and decided maybe politics and international politics and peacemaking might be the thing. Uh, so I did honours in politics at Monash and um, at that point... And that was the same time that um, Grandpa Rufus was, of course, stumbling around the car park? <laughs> yes, my dear um, late father-in-law happened to be the chairman of the department in which... I was, which was um, delightful. Of course, he didn't teach me and, of course, he wasn't involved in, in, in marking me in anything, but uh, I was involved in uh, the occasional foray into the car park because he was very 
uh, absent-minded and occasionally would be wandering around looking for his gorgeous red. And that, that's somehow uh, travelled. You know the car it was. A, uh, I remember it. Um, um, is there, whatever it was, it was not road Not a Jaguar. It was a, not a road A Daimler. Daimler. Yeah, it was right. a Daimler. Very old, 100-year-old Daimler that and he used to drive in the middle of the road. That, um, that inability to locate yeah. one's car yeah. has travelled through the generations, <laughs> I might say. You can find me wandering Along in. with slight eccentricities. <laughs> oh, many eccentricities. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so it was a delightful period. And then um, when your father and I went overseas to further his, uh, his medical training and specialty training, and so I, again, switched gear and uh, did a Master's at the London School of Economics. Uh, that required, of course, funding, so um, I uh, got a, a tuition scholarship in, I suppose, what I thought were quite amusing circumstances because I thought it was one of those things where you just asked for, for money because you were needy and we didn't have any, and um, they'd either decided to give it to you or they didn't. And when I turned up to the... Uh, the office, they told me it was a competitive oral examination. <laughs> they let me into the university. <laughs> so you found that out when you arrived at the Yes. Okay. So they opened the door and there were 10 heads of departments there and they grilled me for an hour on other things. The only thing I can remember is the epistemology of knowledge, which to this day um, I, I do know that back in my, the recesses of my memory I, I know what it means, but I did manage to blab on for I don't know what two-thirds of those words mean, so no, I'm going to leave well, that one. that's all right, exactly. But it was something I was very engaged in at the time. And uh, the, the funny thing was that the two people who won the tuition scholarship, we had to share it, and the other person was a person with the same initials, uh, Susanna Davis. Oh, wow. Who, another S. Davis. Are you still she in was like, Are you yeah, in touch with we became good friends, and she's the, what I called the English Rose, and we just used to laugh and say that our mothers couldn't tell us apart because she was blonde and blue-eyed and I was the complete opposite. And um, <laughs> so the two S. Davises uh, had to share this scholarship, and she was so hard up financially. She was um, volunteering for um, clinical trials, doing those, you know, going to hospitals. Oh, you're and, No, being injected and getting paid for um, testing the effect of medications. Just take a few of these pills that we haven't yet tested on rats exactly, and see how you exactly. go. Exactly, It was the first stage of clinical trials. Mm. She, in fact, she became the um, – she, she was um, the head of the um, UN, one of the uh, – Special rapporteurs. Major – no, development organisation. Oh, she right. did a PhD at the LSE and um, she's now – was the um, – British ambassador to she's now the British ambassador in Ethiopia. Oh, wow. She was the um, seconded to the World Bank for a while. She was in Washington as the um, British delegate there. I think so. She's a very well credentialed person. We 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 catch up from time to time, but it's um, uh, it was a, a great experience. I used to, I worked as a secretary uh, while I was uh, to support uh, us pay the rent in London. And uh, how'd you like that? Uh, it was a very fun experience with a very eccentric bunch of people in an office worthy of a, a chapter of faulty towers. So it's the only way to describe it. Uh, there's no – the British do eccentricity wonderfully. But, um, uh, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to try and write a story, short story about that. It was an amazing experience. And, yeah, it was fabulous being at university, working. London was terrific. It was in the days where – there were only about, oh, I don't know, three or four million people living in London. You could drive and park in Piccadilly Circus and go to the theatre and not get booked wow. and then drive home. Wow. <laughs> but the only food available for people who didn't have any money, like us, was either Indian or something dreadful called Wimpy, Wimpy Burgers, which are, sounds awful. sound like a really terrible version of Macca's and they, this is a shocking, shocking version of McDonald's. Um, and uh, so we had a very... Uh, what's the word, a busy time. We didn't really have money to travel, but we worked hard and we enjoyed our time in London. And then we went to Boston as Dad was doing his PhD and 
I also wanted to do one, so I tried to get a scholarship and got one to um, a small university in Boston called Brandeis, and I thought then that I might consider being an academic in international politics. Um, and I enjoyed I did two years there, taught international relations for a um, year or two, did my PhD exams, and then, then we decided that we needed to come home because um, uh, Dad needed to get into the, into the queue here. Uh, in terms of his career, and I was able to bring back my dissertation to complete here, but instead I took out another master's and decided, as I'd done some international law subjects in London and in Boston, I thought that really I should get on with it and do study law before it was too late, and I regretted not doing it. So, so, I, so you came to law as kind of like the natu- the logical conclusion of that process of study? Yeah, you know I think that's right. The PhD studies were really interesting in terms of looking at meta theory and theories of international. Most of my work was on... Uh, small state bargaining and so I suppose the little guy against the big guy in the international economic sphere and then it became more a question of well if you drill down and you look at the the day-to-day picture if you don't see yourself as a we didn't have uh, social media in those days so becoming a global influencer apart from being a politician <laughs> a diplomat or a UN interpreter it wasn't immediately obvious uh, unless you became an academic or perhaps a think tank mm. person and that's probably what I had in mind the only think tanks that would have been Available then were in Canberra, and uh, we weren't seriously considering a move. Do you to think Canberra, with a think ANU? tank, it's yeah. ever as like as as awesome as what no, you imagine? No, and I like, don't. I think many things are not as yeah, awesome as you yeah, imagine. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because from time to time you'll see people from your previous lives. I mean, I deal in court with interpreters all the time, and I admire them tremendously. But I, I don't ever regret not being one. Mm. And I recently heard a talk from a very good uh, academic from a think tank, and I admired his talk tremendously, but I didn't at all regret not having become one. So I suppose it's a really interesting uh, thing to to look back and see where you've made choices and hopefully you you make ones that are important to you because you don't want to regret them firstly, but secondly because you think that you can contribute something and you're not quite sure where that is. It takes quite a while to work out where your contribution can be made. For you, was it a bit of it about sort of like fairness and justice in society? Always, always. But, you know, if it was small states trying to bargain to get a fair deal and then it was very easy to drill down into the little man or the person on the street trying to get a fair deal. And, um, uh, yeah, so I must say that that's probably was the driver. I always was interested in public service to, to that, for that reason, social justice, yes. Obviously, as a female, you know, the um, some of the structural impediments to uh, participation in various professions were greater then than they are now, mm. without doubt. So, um, yeah, it was an in- interesting thing. So I, I did law and then I did articles and knew that I wasn't really interested in, in being a commercial lawyer in a major law firm. What was the environment like in um, a major law firm then when you did articles? Well, I, I, I strongly recommend anybody to read Elliot Perlman's book, uh, if the horse, maybe the horse will talk. I'm reading his latest book now. Yeah. It's fantastic. Isn't is it? that the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's about a law firm yeah, and the it's, culture it's, of a law it's firm. Based it's, in it's a city satire based on real yeah, life yeah. places it, in the city. It's, it's amazing. It's, I mean, it's a really, how funny it's, is it's it? An I'm so happy you mentioned take. that. Absolutely, it's an extreme take, and it's yeah. um, a phenomenally yeah. entertaining book. Yeah. But you know, taken to the extreme, I think um, those the culture of those places. I mean, there are differences depending on the firm, but I think you just have to try and work out where your your place lies. So I think it was easier to go straight to the bar from the profession and, and decide, well, um, you have a better prospect of doing something that has day-to-day value um, that can t- contribute to other people's 
welfare um, and social justice obviously is um, it doesn't come more important than that and I, I guess I had the opportunity at the bar to work um, to do some sessional work as a member of a, a guardianship board so I had the opportunity to um, conduct hearings and to get a pretty good handle or good good insight into the problems that um, uh, of elder abuse and the problems of, that uh, people with mental illnesses have in the community in terms of So sorry, this abused. is when you become a tribunal member? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, a sessional member? I became a sessional member when I was a barrister, so I did, you know, mainly appearances in court and then three, two or three days a week I'd go and become um, sit on the tribunal. And I found that very eye-opening and uh, I was much more comfortable, I must say, on that side of the, the bench because it involved listening and uh, as a barrister I was always more interested probably in the right outcome that I was interested in um, winning and often you know as a barrister when you have a strong or a weak case um, and if it involves money, well, of course that's interesting but if it involves, I think I found administrative law and um, discrimination law more interesting because obviously the rights of the individual are affected and a lot of people don't get adequate representation in a lot of these things and, and they're important uh, important for them and often important for public policy down the track. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and so, um, did you, from your time being a barrister, you knew, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I think for me, my journey mirrors yours mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. how it's, it's a process of finding where you fit, yeah. but also through a process of figuring out what doesn't work exactly. and where you don't I find so experimenting. Is, I think that so much of the journey is that process of eliminating yeah. one thing after another and getting yeah. closer to what gives you. I mean, this idea of being happy in a job is, is a nonsense. I think feeling total every, every every profession and every occupation has its frustrating days, its terrible environments, its bad culture, its its experiences that are less than pleasant from time to time. Um, so it's really just a matter of what's in it that, that gives it enough meaning that you're yes, prepared I'm to right overlook a lot of those things I'm and just you. say it's worth being there because, A, nothing's ever simple, yeah. B, nothing's, everything is complex, C, nobody's waiting for you. And well, make, everything's trade-offs and uh, yeah. things are complex. Yeah. And, and, and nobody, nobody makes, nobody's waiting for you to come out into the world yeah. and say, thank you for coming, we, we welcome you for your contribution and we adore yeah. you and we think you're fantastic. I mean, that's not how life is. And I think it's really important to realise that, Everybody that you meet, everybody that you see, they're on their own journey. Often they're facing struggles that you know nothing about and it's uh, terribly important. Well, of course, in my line of work, most of the people that I deal with have very fraught personal lives or mental health lives or you know situations in their lives. But it's a really interesting lesson to reflect on because then when you look at anybody that you meet, you think, well, you just don't know what's going on in that person's life. And so sometimes you put up with behaviours that, Perhaps you, you ordinarily wouldn't just because you're not quite sure and other times you have to um, uh, try and get somebody to modify theirs. Well, I like that insight yeah. about um, being open to the fact that you never know what's going on in someone else's yeah. life. So yeah. Yeah. maybe um, when you're dealing with people to always be conscious that it's never a simple calculus of no. because I, I do or think X, then Y. Or because you say something or behave in a particular way mm. that there isn't something behind it. And I yeah. think the drivers of behaviour and obviously um, in our community the the number of people who struggle with firstly uh, – abuse somewhere in their lives or neglect somewhere in their lives, uh, mental health issues that arise from those things, uh, complicated by whether it's intellectual disability, whether it's, you know, in the Indigenous communities or First Nation communities, uh, whether it's um, intergenerational 
uh, trauma, um, those things are uh, leave their mark on people, and um, then you add to that the drug problems when people are distressed and self-medicating, and then you've got the addiction problems and the behaviours that 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 follow, and um, then you're looking at them in a society that doesn't really have uh, funding and structure sufficient to support people. Yes, and I think yeah. I think that's an interesting yeah. point. Is that yeah. the way society is, yeah. uh, whether you like it or you agree with it or mm. not, or take the politics mm. out of it is not constructed in a way that creates sufficient space and support for, the, for those groups that you mentioned. No, the most vulnerable communities, uh, I think, in particular Indigenous people who are a lot of the time disconnected from their their mob and uh, living in difficult circumstances. I mean, in, in Western Australia, the Indigenous justice issue is such a fraught one that um, there's almost nothing that you can say about that issue that isn't as serious as it gets, um, and then the other things are just sort of behind it in the in the seriousness stakes. I think that's that's my observation. I went to a, an Indigenous Justice Conference recently, and just the raw statistics about the incarceration rates in WA are beyond horrific. The mm. fact that children are being incarcerated thousands of miles from home, away from their people, and um, away from any support structures. These are. Uh, the inhumane um, and still uh, practices which haven't yet been abolished, even just the way that the legal system impacts on people. If you find a person who lives up below the poverty line, which 60% of our Indigenous people do across the country, then they have no chance they'll be in jail under the, the WA sort of misdemeanour, three strikes and you're out system. If you don't fa- pay your fines three times, you go to jail. Mm. And they, nobody has the prospect of paying a fine mm. because there's uh, in so much difficulty. Well, there are a lot of disadvantaged communities uh, or people who are disadvantaged here and in a way it's it's a bit the same. Accessing mental health treatment and care is very difficult for people who are living on a pension yeah. in, a, in a society where um, funding is allocated to hospitals whose policies depend on throughput and keeping people out, yeah. of, ho- out of hospital beds. So a lot of people present... Um, in distress to hospitals and are told they aren't acutely unwell enough. Yeah, but I think yeah. that, that that's one thing yeah. particularly that needs yeah. to change yeah. the the um, the volume. Ba- and, and look, it is changing mm. over time mm. slowly, but mm. um, the, the move towards, you know, activity-based funding and sort of changing um, volume and beds and all that kind of stuff versus prevention, early intervention Absolutely. and keeping people well Absolutely. Um, is a paradigm shift. I don't think our system is really prepared for yet. No, I mean, in spite of all the um, initiatives that have been taken by Origin, by you know, there are intervention programs for young people, but so much more is needed for young Indigenous people, for example. I mean, um, I was astounded to learn that was it sixty five thousand Indigenous children don't get a secondary education mm. in this country. Mm. That is. Uh, an astonishing. I think it's um, extraordinary past- statistic. It's partially got to do with the fact that we don't learn about it early enough. We're not mm. educated properly mm. about it, mm. and we don't know what to do. No. And um, the tyranny of distance is a, a big factor. The fact that you know, whilst most of the world has access to internet schooling, mm. uh, the remote communities don't have internet access. No. So that's one problem, which, in a sense, a lot could be overcome if they had that. Secondly, a lot of the time they. Um, those who are in, in the jail system, when they come out, there aren't the supports to give them 
enough immediate qualifications to enable them to get jobs. If yep. they can get a job, mm. their lives are completely transformed. Yep. And we've seen, you know, a lot of people who shared their lived experience with us at that conference mm. who talked about that. And so there are small programs here and there being funded, but it's an extraordinary um, challenge yeah. that we have. Uh, so, and we step because we have a query court. So we sentence um, Indigenous offenders just using a slightly different system doesn't change the outcome, yeah. but it's a system that involves... Is it using Aboriginal customary law or...? No, no. It's just apl- we apply exactly the same legal principles. All we do is we have um, in the middle of the plea process, we um, have the elders of the community um, to engage with the offender around the table to talk with them about their their problems and their past and the troubles that they've been in, and to give them some feedback about what the elders feel they could do with them and for them and how they um, – the opinion of the elders is powerful um, for a lot of Indigenous offenders. And, and so, is that producing good outcomes? In terms of getting them engaged, often back with their, their mob and uh, then linking them with services upon release from prison – I think the answer is yes. It creates a, a much better context uh, for them to try and uh, reconnect with the world um, after they have been in jail. Uh, it doesn't change outcomes. It's just that if if they're willing to engage in that process as part of the plea mm. um, process, then there is that that engagement which gives them the opportunity then to um, begin the communication with the elders and then to take advantage of all the support structures afterwards, which mm. I think is 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 really um, – it's a step in the right direction, but it can never replace all the things that we need to do yep. to change, um, you know, healthcare literacy and um, the, the basic human need issue for people in remote communities. So, you know, it, life's a challenge. Um, it's a, a very interesting world. And you um, see a lot of that through your work every you do, day. You do, and, and particularly the intersection of um, uh, people with um, intellectual disabilities and mental health issues um, and polysubstance abuse is a real challenge. Um, and so providing the services to engage with people and to help them support them because giving up any sort of addiction is usually a off the wagon on the wagon yeah, kind of journey it's, it's not it's, it's not a process. linear thing where you just say yeah i'm cured i give up well, thank po- you policy designers yeah. um tend to love linear kind of cause yeah. effect reverse yeah. thinking and, and they demand outcomes yep. just like that so that somehow you failed if somebody yep. takes up drugs again whereas it's usually pretty inevitable that mm. they'll have a few um, what's the word? A few steps where they'll few fall. Bumps in the road. A few yeah. bumps in the road, but with enough support mm. uh, and a lot of them with sufficient linkages. I mean, we have lots of frameworks for them. You know, mental health services and outreach workers and case workers and mm. NDIS workers. But often, there's a co- coordination piece in there. It's a missing. coordination piece missing, and particularly when people get lost to the system, become unwell, and because of an intellectual disability can't engage by themselves, and they don't have family, if mm. they had a terrible background, um, re-engaging often is only because they'll present themselves and say, "I'm in trouble, help." But a hospital will not have the resources to yep. admit them, even yep. though they think they might be at risk to themselves or other people. And, and I think you raised those, um, yeah. quite a good point around yeah. intersectionality. So yeah. the idea that people can have different layers of um, lack of opportunity and privilege. So, yeah. you know, people might have a mental health issue. They might also be um, experiencing a disability. They might also have family issues. Yeah. And the system really can sort of 
deal with one of those aspects at a time. But when it's all together, yeah. it's it's it, the system somehow finds it very difficult to cope with that. Yeah. And our learning that you know we we do a lot of. I mean, many of us will read endless psychiatric reports and psychological reports, and we go to conferences and to inform ourselves about. Um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, and how childhood trauma, whether it's by physical abuse, sexual abuse, or just neglect, um, can have such a lasting impact and how that intersects with homelessness, you know, drug-taking, um, uh, mental health issues, long-term mental health issues. And if you overlay that with an intellectual disability, you have a, a, um, a real challenge yeah. to maintain people safely in the community but also... Uh, to make sure they don't get lost to follow up. Well, I think, yeah. ironically, the perverse reaction there is that the more complex the case, the easier it is to just walk, keep walking past and, and maybe not dealing with it. Yeah. Too hard basket sort well, of mentality. I, I, I think that's right. It, it, they are, there are lots of services around and they do try to... Uh, to do the best that they can, but obviously the funding's always will always be an issue. But you know, if you don't invest at the front end, like when when people are young and have already had bad experiences and have disabilities and have mental health issues, then it's just going to get it's just going mm. to get worse. People tend not to cure themselves. You, you know? deal with um, a lot every day and yeah. every week in terms yeah. of the cases you're yeah. doing, both civil and yeah. criminal. Yeah. How do you kind of step away from that and make space for yourself? Because some of the stuff you're dealing with is very complex. A lot of it is quite troubling, I imagine. Um, what's your own process for disengaging? And Probably just trying to read literature, watch lots of um, lifestyle programs that have trees <laughs> and cows in them. <laughs> I have noticed that. Yes, no violence. Um, Hang yeah, out with it, a puppy. It, it just that's right. A, a good dog to um, to sit on you is is reassuring. I think it's um, just recognizing how complex uh, people are, how difficult life can be for many people, and what a challenge it is to um, intersect with those people often at the most difficult parts of their lives, and then to have to make decisions about them uh, because they've done something wrong is. It's it's a really um, sobering exercise and one that none of us takes lightly because it's it's however bad the offending has been when you look at the life circumstances of some of the offenders um, you just it, sometimes it's hard to believe that somebody can have suffer that there can be so much suffering uh, for one person uh, over one short lifetime uh, before they go down a particular mm. path which isn't to excuse the behaviour but understanding it and uh, understanding the complexity of of com uh, behaviors and also i think having never losing uh, compassion or respect for people uh, obviously we're dealing both with victims and with offenders but you know in other cases we're dealing with all sorts of other people who've, who've had difficult um, experiences uh, it's really just a never-ending sea of what what humanity has to offer us which is um um, let, let me talk yeah. to you a bit about yeah. your kind of um, mind and the way you think yeah. a little bit because yeah. I think one thing I've noticed about your work and your, your career is that you're, you're both um, operational but quite strategic too and you do sort of work at systems level to work on reform and you've done a lot in um, sentencing reform and uh, process reform at the courts. Um, I just wonder, um, you know, most most people I, I speak to or I know kind of uh, either operational yes. or strategic. Yes. Yeah. Um, what do you think about your journey? Or I think it just reflects the fact that I've, I've got a lot of interests, a bit like you, and um, system change and uh, system efficiency is a real interest. Um, also, um, not efficiency for efficiency's sake, but to drive things out 
from the to unclutter or declutter the court processes so that you don't have anybody coming to court and wasting their own money and the taxpayers' money for no good reason. So that's what drove me in in civil reform, um, trying to make sure that all the cases were mediated, trying to make sure people's money wasn't wasted on litigation that could be resolved. Um, a lot of that seems to go in waves. Uh, seem to we drove um, a lot of the profession back to doing its job uh, successfully uh, for a certain phase, and then you get another phase where the court uh, gets more bureaucrats involved, and then as the bureaucrats become involved, somehow the profession works its way back to uh, coming in for uh, to argue about silly things. So it, it's interesting to observe. Of course, when you're no longer in control, you watch um, things happen which you might do differently, but that's life. You know, you, you, you try and make your contribution and then you have to realise that uh, younger people or other people are going to make their contribution mm. and they might be just as worthwhile but in a different time uh, and you just have to accept that. So, yeah, I've done, I've done that for about 15, 12 years, but um, now I'd say I'm still very interested in systems. I'm not in control of as many of them as I was Uh but it remains an endless source of fascination as to what makes something tick over efficiently um, as, a, as a, a beast, a process beast. Um, and then, of course, it's a very different perspective to do on the you, ground. But I think you also yeah. like to unpack yeah. the, um, yeah. the theory, just, just like I do actually, yeah. like yeah. Uh, the motivations yeah. and the, the, the psychology and the behavioural science behind process. So why we're oriented to a, yes. towards certain policy configurations or, you know, yeah. judicial configurations. And, and it is like there are lots of fascinating aspects mm. to the fact that human, uh, the knowledge about human behaviour has advanced enormously and yet, for example, our jury directions don't reflect the amount of scientific knowledge that there is about human behaviour and the drivers and so there's a big lag and so we can go and educate ourselves about what the science says but we can't take judicial notice of that science in the way that we instruct our jurors yeah, until it's kind the of legislation like the, um, catches up. It's like the paradox <laughs> of unconscious bias training. So how do you make somebody aware of the things that they're unconscious of in a way that doesn't make them too aware of what they weren't conscious of? That's exactly you, you, right. You know, or, or, that, or, or that's right, and, and things that haven't yet been mandated as flowing through yeah, the system. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So there is a uh, – it's slightly puzzling. You know, I've, I've raised that with – people uh, you know why is it that there's such a lag and, and when will it be that our for example the directions that we give to juries more closely reflect what we now know about human behavior yeah. um and it probably will be a, st a while i'm sure there's a law reform project somewhere going on i think on if there's to do a, that. another yeah. university yeah. opportunity for you to do it <laughs> yeah. an additional phd or masters <laughs> that could be the area so policy implementation in the judicial yeah. system setting yeah. around um juries and whatnot it, it, it's really a problem isn't it when you get to that point that so many things interest you but you can't concentrate on well, any one of them long but, enough but we share that problem yes. i think yeah. we, we do share that problem yeah. of um being interested and curious about a whole range of things yeah. and we can kind of skim and go deep to a point but then you've got to inevitably pull yourself back a bit um, right. and but I think curiosity and, and learning has has been a huge thing for for you and I but particularly I've the way I've modelled mm, myself mm, on you. Mm. I mean, ever since I was a kid, mm. you read it voraciously. Mm. Like the way you attack a book <laughs> is like no other human. How many how many books do you take on an average flight anywhere? No, take, Be honest. I take at least four or five, and I leave them in the seat when I read them. <laughs> so every three or four hours, one one finds its way under a seat. But um, yeah, when did that start for you? That was, that was at quite a young age. The reading. Oh, I think I taught myself to read uh, quite young, mm. and it was a. Uh, I suppose, a refuge and um, 
Uh, to this day, if I'm having a really bad day, I will go to the nearest bookshop and just lose myself yeah. in the books there. I think that's just the solace in uh, the world of books because it makes you realise that you're not alone and you can always read something that will give you a window into something. else's But you're always experience. learning. Like, you know, yeah, um, the amazing yeah. thing I think about yeah. you is yeah. that you read really widely. Yeah. So you'll be reading maybe yeah. one fiction book, yeah. one book on behavioural economics, <laughs> another book on the history of Cairo. You know, like it, it's it's quite incredible. You're always – your brain is – Dipping into different yeah, things. Yeah. I know. It's it, it's – it's interesting because I would really like to dip into something more profoundly, but of course, part of the stimulation comes from having different cases every day yeah. or trials that yeah. are short or don't run. You're for extremely years. busy, and you have a big workload. That's right, and so it, although I would love to to dig deep uh, on one subject and produce something that wasn't a judgment <laughs> that was remotely interesting um, about it, and maybe it'll have to wait till I retire, but. I don't know how you yeah, did it, to be yeah, honest. Like yeah. um, the way you looked after um, us kids, and you know, in the court, and being having a young mum who's a, a, a judge and kind of at the county court, and you know, still doing all the stuff for us all the time. It was just in, it was well, incredible. You'll remember those days when um, those early years where we go from basketball practice to guitar practice via McDonald's. Oh, <laughs> yeah. What's, what's I, I do remember that we dinner. went to McDonald's perhaps a little bit too much. You know, I, I think We'll never do it now. Yeah, no, never, never, yeah. Um, unless yeah. it's a, you know, a hang, hungover kind of situation for me. But, yeah, um, yeah it, it's been – I'd like to say back then it wasn't that unhealthy, but I'm sure it was no, just the, as unhealthy. The time, but it was a different time. Often. I really yeah, do think yeah, that yeah. – um, you know, just how, how you yeah. said behavioural science yeah. has changed and yeah. our understanding of people. Our understanding of diet has changed and also how we think about fitness, you know? Look, to be frank, I, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I don't think we knew that it wasn't healthy. It's just that when you, you've got that much on your plate yeah. and you just – you just do what's convenient but occasionally. Imagine, it's, not the, it's not the end of the world. The idea yeah, right yeah, now yeah, yeah. of having a medium-sized yeah. Big Mac meal with a Coke <laughs> and chips was just like unthinkable, unthinkable. today, unthinkable. But back then, know. you know, um, maybe once or twice a week, and yeah. I remember after school camp we would always do that as well. So your reward for returning from school camp <laughs> is 4,000 calories. Well done. <laughs> well, you hadn't eaten for that long. I was always terrible. Like a Jewish mother, you're afraid your yeah, kid's going to yeah. starve to death. After all, there was that camp where they let you be rained out and you came back and all had pneumonia oh, yeah, so i right. never forgave them for that thank you wesley <laughs> uh yeah so um yeah. yeah but i think your ability to juggle kind of um all working mothers yeah I think but, they, they just learn how to do that yeah. i mean everybody and working fathers for that matter i mean who are by themselves i think it's just one of those things that juggling is something that you you learn to do and everybody who works does it and I think you just become very efficient and if you need to go to the supermarket at 11 o'clock at night, that's when you go. I love going to the supermarket at <laughs> 11 at night. It's a great time. Exactly. I think it's, it's an excellent. They're stocking quiet, the shelves. Stocking the shelves. You can get the latest there merchandise. There are two-year-olds having tantrums Correct. on the floor. Correct, correct. Um, yeah, I think it was really just a matter of, um, uh, like anybody, just getting your ducks in a row, getting organised and I, I hope, um, you know, you always like to think there were – Trade-offs, I mean, I'd, when I was a barrister, for example, um, I didn't stay back after work and, you know, do a lot of uh, networking things that people oh, network, do because I always wanted to be home with the kids. So on. you put it, make that a priority. Networking is a total waste of time. We all know well, that. I, you know, you can just sit on LinkedIn on your computer now and network. Well, exactly. You don't have to do it that way. Probably now. didn't have LinkedIn then. We didn't have LinkedIn, son. You know that. And I get teased for being... Uh, 
almost being almost invisible on the internet. <laughs> Tell you what, I did a Google search for you before this started. Yes. And I, I think about um, three references came up, all to foreign actors in different countries. Yeah, and um, that's really with, good. I'm delighted. I've never, I've never searched. For <laughs> the digital I'm footprint is low. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. I don't have any presence. Look, most of us don't. That's partly. Even if I didn't have this occupation, I'm I'm not interested in that. No, nah, but populating you're populating um, that profile. I think yeah. it's terrific, yeah. and I think yeah. more of us are starting to kind of um, take up on that. I mean, I don't know if I talk to you about yeah. it, but I'm deeply um, out of social media now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do LinkedIn, and I'm much happier. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really a really good thing that people are beginning to see just how. Um, this is where I share my thoughts. Corrosive you know? it could be, yeah. and and also what a time waster it is, yeah. and also. Uh, distracting and sometimes well, damage, distressing. Damaging to yes. perception of self. Exactly. And I, I, think, exactly. I think that's the biggest yeah. concern. And, you know, is, we spend a lot of time in court, uh, especially in civil cases, having uh, people's Facebook accounts, uh, I don't know if they hack them or they get access mm. to them, but uh, there are hundreds of pages of Facebook um, entries being uh, tra- photocopied and presented to court to somehow prove what somebody does or doesn't believe yeah. or what they are or aren't doing. And really it's just a form of virtual reality, which yep. is completely uninteresting yes. because it, it it's a projection of something that you want people to see but that isn't the true you. It's a bit like you're writing your own autobiography. Yeah. You know, well, I, yeah. I think it's very self-indulgent. And I think when it started actually um, back in the day, it was quite a useful tool to connect with friends and overseas people and contacts yeah. and alike and keeping in touch <clears throat> is very much the name of the game. Yeah. Now it's kind of like the way I describe Twitter is like yeah. it's kind of just standing out on the street and yelling things that you think at yes. that very moment yeah. and not listening to what even, anyone – like this. imagine a street full of people. Yeah. They're all yelling things out into the street but no one is talking to it. Absolutely. And, and I mean, look, probably you're of the age now where even you see it, but often you, you just wonder what kind of a world you're in where people are more, they're not actually experiencing where they are, they're actually photographing themselves yeah. doing something without experiencing. Well, that's like they, the, would yes. you say that's the opposite of mindfulness and presence? Abs- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think it's probably, it's bad for, for human relations. And um, I think it's bad for for young kids to, well, ideally kids would learn to socialise the way they always have, uh, man to man, yep. <laughs> kid to kid, um, and uh, one just hopes that they'll con- you continue to you know play sport and get out there and not not look at a screen. The Absolutely. screen time business, I think, is a real issue, and of course the pressure on kids, the con- conformity pressures to look like something. Yeah, to, to, I think the biggest trouble yeah. is actually that the bullying follows them home. Absolutely, um, that's Absolutely. the concern. Is that yeah. you don't you can't just leave the place and then your identity follows you and then your your identity is no longer there till the next day. Mm. Your your public persona, mm. which is the mirror of you or mm. the same of you, is still vulnerable in there Almost. for the take. That's right. And I think that once you put, you put yourself out there, you have an expectation of getting some sort of gratification and support and that very easily turns to the negative where you are basically either being trolled or bullied or mm. criticised or just bagged for no good reason. Yeah. It's very, um, uh, what's the word, trying to incentivize people to be kind to one another is what the system should be doing. For sure. And it, it, unfortunately for a lot of people who probably have a lot of frustrations and who feel a lack of control, all it does is allow them to vent those things. And, you know, it's the old story. If you look back at the people who are trolling people and you look at who they are, they'd be the same people who might be bullying in the playground. Yep. You could see, you could identify the reasons why they might be doing it, mm. but it's much harder to control because you can't really get to talk to them person to person yep. as you could 
if they were in front of you. So, Mum, you've always been a um, yeah. quite a big exerciser. Is yeah. that where you find your mindful space? For sure, for sure. I mean, even when your kids were young, uh, I mean, I was criticised by a number of people for not having any clothes. <laughs> what? I used to go to my university lectures. I'd drop you off at a child oh, for, for the 12 hours gear. a week and yep. I'd go in my running gear, run yep. around the oval at uni and then go to lectures in my running gear. Mm. But when I was you were do, you were doing like running before athleisure yeah, and uh, and all the cool tights were a I thing, was, weren't you? I was. I started when I was about twelve with my father, who was um, a big man who was not athletic, but who got roped into um, this uh, uh, the jog, running club jogging club, Park. exactly, run by a an Olympic uh, coach, um, wonderful guy. Fritz was it? There's um, a German name. Franz Stampfel, mm. who coached, I think, uh, one of our one mile champions and a a javelin thrower who was famous, uh, very successful in those days. So he would run a sort of a clinic for, you know, executives who needed to get fit. Presumably it was a venture for him. He made some money out of yeah. it and so they'd effectively subscribe. It was a bit like a personal yeah. trainer in the days when it's, there were no yeah, personal trainers. That's exactly what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, it's like yeah. um, planned exercise but or the would, idea he, of jogging. If he didn't turn up to the thing, yeah. he'd ring you up and say, where are you? And so, you know, he was a terrific That's bloke. what you need. You need a German personal exactly. trainer. Exactly. I feel like and, that's a good and thing. And so he would just put the oldies through their paces mm. and uh, sometimes the kids would hang around and go as well. And for, for a joke, he, he wouldn't time you or anything but he'd just tell you what to do and so there were a bunch of us who used to go and I started running then and I just kept doing it. And I you, did it you love wonderful. it? I did look I enjoy the challenge of it? Yeah it was not it wasn't distance running it was just for fitness and I've never been a person who was I've always been sporty and good at you're sport. You're a good tennis player you're great at um, softball was at good school. At, yeah good at sport but not not very competitive. I think you're selling yourself a, short there I, I know for a fact <laughs> for, I've seen your medals before you were very good at softball at school. I was you were football, good at netball, I was good at swimming, I was good tennis. at a lot of things, but I, don't, I, I wasn't that competitive. You've got dad beat in the, in the competitive <laughs> sports days, that's for sure. Yeah, but it was, I think I really enjoyed the, the relaxation that came from, from the jogging, of, and so I kept it up. And when you, you've got kids in your time poor, having 40 minutes to do something like that, which is quite intensive, um, is like a form of meditation, actually, being able to just let your, uh, your mind wander. Until I started falling over when I was running, <laughs> I could wander. Now I can't wander without looking down. But uh, I'm still doing it, but uh, more cautiously than before. So um, I want to ask you yeah. about books. Yes, and if there are any book recommendations you've had, you've read the most books out of anyone I think I've ever met. Uh, probably, uh, but read- I've also read more. I read a lot of uh, p- police procedurals and thrillers and what I call not rubbish. They serve Sometimes a purpose. They do. High-class rubbish. Have you got any r- recent recommendations you want to give a plug? Well, I was just thinking of that book that we would The uh, Elliot Perlman one? Yeah. Um, if people search for Elliot Perlman, they'll find no, his latest book. No, because I go through phases. You know, I'm, I'm reading a whole – I go through phases. At the moment I'm doing lots of reading on um, – uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, just out of interest because uh, some of the, uh, yeah, just. Good, um, bed, good bit of bedtime <laughs> sort of wind down reading. Well, I think once you get into the subject matter, you you, you it's a bit like uh, schools of philosophy or um, uh, psychoanalysis where there are different schools. So there are different sets of theories about all sorts of things, like in in systems analysis, and you, you, I tell you what, you could find anything interesting. Yeah, that, yeah. That's just that, that's just some in point that the fact that you're getting deep <laughs> well, into that. Well, because we read a lot of reports, I suppose, yeah. and many of them will refer obliquely to certain things. I like to kind of educate myself about those things, but then I'll read three or four books on that, and then I'll, I'll move topics. There's lots of other things that are interesting, but um, uh, I think. 
probably because I'm dealing so much with human behaviour, it's it's a, of interest to me. And then, of course, I guess um, reading about policy is not as uh, edifying, but um, uh, looking for um, it, they're just issue based sort of um, policies. Yep. You know, like. Let, let me change yeah, tack slightly because, yeah, yeah. um, you know, I very much see you as a trailblazer. You might not see yourself as a trailblazer in what you've done. Um, we, we all stand on the shoulders of those who have become before us. There's no doubt about that. But um, as a young woman who's a, a dark-skinned woman, who's a <laughs> Jewish woman, yeah. um, I see at least three layers of challenge yes. there in a, yeah. very much a white male-dominated yes. profession. Um, do you have any advice for sort of young people, coloured people, people sort of um, – facing disadvantage about sort of kind of how to make your way in a difficult system? I think, look, the reality is that this is such a great melting pot of a country that and it's generally so open that it, it, I, I really just think you just put your head down and um, get on with what you're interested in and apply yourself and really people – whose opinions you care about will take you at face value uh, and uh, won't be in any way, uh, what's the word, not even affected, but wouldn't even consider the issues. You know, it's a funny thing when, you, when you're in a melting pot society, we don't notice who's different because we're such a mixture. Hmm. If you go to Brazil, you are just struck constantly about the the rainbow of, yep. of of colors from light to dark depending on south and north in the country yep. but you know rio is just a complete melting pot well we're a melting pot sort of globally in terms of all all races and, and colors and ethnicities and i think um by and large we're a meritocracy with ex- with exceptions and um i think the barriers to entry for most people apart from maybe our indigenous people our first nations aren't as great as they were but you know for example there's a public service that deals across the country with um all the indigenous issues or first nations issues and of the 1500 people in that particular bureaucracy only about 200 of them are first nations Mm. peoples so that's an issue of penetration yes and getting giving people opportunity and making sure that everything's being done to give them enough education that they have the opportunity to apply for those jobs. Because well, that's like a nothing um, about us without us kind of mentality as well. So having the people who are experiencing those challenges being a critical part of the design of the solution. And- that's exactly right. And I think um, it's it's really clear that the only initiatives that have ever succeeded or that will ever succeed, um, there are sufficiently uh, talented and uh, what's the word? Educated members of that community, as leaders of those communities already there, who can tell you what the communities need and how they need it, and who are able to produce it for themselves. It's only a matter, I think, of uh, applying enough resources to, to them so that they can get on with doing it. But you know, the basic education, basic healthcare—it's not rocket science. No, so they're the not. things that most of our other. Uh, communities don't actually struggle with um, because many of them are very uh, motivated to get educated. So that generation, there's a a complete uh, upward social mobility within 10 or 15 years of any particular arrival. Um, They come with young kids. Those kids learn English within about two years. That's it. Off they go. And you always have a bit of trouble, you know, just as you had 
gang problems in the 1970s when particular communities first came here. You've got them every time a community comes here, you have the same issues. But by and large, most of the members of the community, within about 10 years, their kids are off and running. But in our, for our First Nations peoples, it hasn't been hmm. – that hasn't been That's easy. That's definitely not happening. No, I mean, if you, if you give them the right conditions, employability and opportunity, it'll happen. But there's such a gap there that uh, they don't get – they're not at the same starting point yeah. a lot of the time. And that's a source of amazing um, just, you know, distress to, to contemplate that here we are in 2020 mm. and um, that's the situation. But that's just one of the things that um, uh, I think a lot about and probably my next – uh, topic of interest that, that I'll read widely about is reading around uh, for Well, I'll be sharing policy. that interest um, <laughs> yeah, with you, actually. Yeah, so yeah. I'm on that journey too. Yeah, I, I think so I look forward to chatting with you more about that. And um, I, I did want to sort yeah, of finish yeah. up by just asking you if there's any quotes um, that you like that you live your life by or whether there's any sort of foundational piece of advice you want to leave um, that's kind of informed how you've gone about your, your, your life every day. No, I think... I think it's just the, the the words that are the things that are important to me are um, respect, compassion, and the acknowledgement of complexity. That all of those things go together. You have to uh, have respect for people. You have to always have compassion for the circumstances in which people may find themselves, and don't never judge them without. Um, well, other people don't have to judge other people, but without realizing how complex people's lives are and. Um, uh, yeah, and then I guess it's supposed to, trying to do the right thing uh, by people and if you can, trying to make a difference, even if it's only in the day-to-day -day way that you treat people. I mean, The God of Small Things was a very interesting um, book about just what a difference it makes. There you go, you made a book recommendation. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's been around for a long time. It's a very but, good book, though. But just the, the respect, I mean, in Japan, for example, um, Society there is remarkably respectful of people at every level of society, no matter what they do. And people bow to street sweepers, and they bow to people who clean the trains to acknowledge the um, um, effort that they make to do their jobs. And it's a very interesting feature of a society that's complex in other yeah, ways. It's going to say, but, yeah, very stratified, <laughs> and you know. But but it is an interesting thing yeah. that you know people who stack our shelves, people who work in our commercial laundries. I mean, you've been there. People been who, there. who are on the assembly line, people who are working in the mines, the people who have the worst jobs, slaughterers and, uh, you know, people who work in abattoirs, they all are doing what they're doing and most people try and put their best foot forward. It's important to acknowledge that and respect them for what they're doing. Mum, yeah. thank you so much for coming. I, I know I bullied you into it, but I so appreciate <laughs> the time we've had together and we'll continue to have over dinner after this. Love Absolutely. you too. Um, is, if people want to sort of learn more about your work, yeah. they yeah. should presumably go to the county court website. Is the best thing uh, to do? Of course they could do that or they could... Um, if they want to connect with you, um, should they just email me? Yeah, or? I think that's yep, probably, that's probably right. best. Okay, yep, no problem. We'll make sure that happens. Lovely Thank you so you. much for joining me, Mum. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. <laughs>